And good evening. It's uh, been good to study the book of Ruth with you. And uh, don't worry, we're in chapter 4, so, you know, if you're tired of me, now after this one, I'm out of your hair, so it's okay. It's okay. We have gotten through each of these chapters, and we are now at the final one. It's good to bring a conclusion to the story. Um, And so turn there if you haven't already, by the way. No handout again. Um, Just going to rely upon your Bibles uh, to follow along. As I said in the beginning of this series, um, the book of Ruth is a love story that I think we can all enjoy and we all can get behind. We can all learn something from it. In it, we've seen how God has sovereignly overseen the events, the, the tragic events of these two women, Naomi and Ruth, and how he's led them to a certain place, been sovereign over it all, been merciful to them, uh, even a, in a despairing situation. And, uh, and, and we see how God ultimately rewards those who seek after him and seek to do what is right. We see that both in the life of Ruth and also now in the life of Boaz as we've learned something about his character. And tonight we're going to conclude this story with chapter 4. And just to summarize, in case you missed any of the previous messages, uh, we said that Ruth came to Bethlehem from her homeland in Moab. And uh, this happened uh, after both her husband died and also um, her husband's brother died and also after Elimelech, her father-in-law died. And so going back to Bethlehem with Naomi, she made a choice to make Naomi's people her people and her God her God as well. And so in chapter 2, we saw that God blessed that choice on Ruth's part and, and uh, she came to glean grain from the fields of a godly man named Boaz. He provided for her needs and as it turned out, he was also eligible to be her kinsman redeemer, which meant that he could theoretically marry her in order to carry on the family line in place of her deceased husband. And then last week in chapter three, we talked about how Naomi schemed in order to try to bring these two individuals together. Um, She wanted to look out for Ruth's interests and she kind of placed them in a situation that she thought would somehow make this happen. Although, as we revealed in the story last week, it really was a compromising situation. Putting a woman in the middle of the night right at the foot of a guy's bed probably isn't the best way to propose marriage. And it's not the most honorable or the most, um, you know, innocent way to go about it. And so we said there were some things about that that weren't optimal. But in the end, they both managed to keep their integrity. Uh, They didn't sleep with each other. They didn't do anything improper. And uh, Ruth asked him, um, basically, would you be my kinsman redeemer? Uh, She said, spread your wings over me, which uh, she uh, was referring back to that comment he made in chapter two, where he said, you've come to this land uh, to seek God under whose wings you've taken refuge. And she says, now I'm, I'm asking you to be my redeemer in this regard. He said, I'd love to. I'm honored that you'd ask. But I first have to check with this other guy in town who is actually closer um, in the relationship line than I am. So he would be the first in line to to be your redeemer. And if he says no, then then I'm all for it, essentially. Okay, it doesn't say that exactly in the Bible. You, you get what I'm trying to say. Um, we saw in Ruth 3.12, Boaz said, it's true that I'm a close relative. However, there is one closer than I. That mattered back in that day, of course. And so that's the answer Ruth was left with. 
Um, Ruth 3.13, he said, remain this night and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So that's where we left off. Um, And of course, we stopped at this uncertain point. It's kind of like a cliffhanger. Okay, she's uh, been rather bold in going to his house and asking him, will you perform this role for me? And he says, "Uh, you got to wait. Okay, maybe I'd love to, but we've got to see what will happen first. So we're left wondering what's going to happen. Chapter four, that's where we're at. and We're going to find the answer. And we'll begin in verse one. It says in verse one, now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. Okay, so immediately, this is a good start to, to answer our question about what's going to happen. Because from the first verse, Boaz acts. He, he goes to make good on his promise. And so he goes to the city gate. And the city gate, by the way, was a place where transactions were normally done in that day. So it seems like he's immediately acting on this first thing in the morning. Um, and that's exactly what um, we saw in chapter 3, verse 18. Naomi said to Ruth, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out. For this man will not rest until he has settled it today. And sure enough, that's exactly what Boaz does. First thing in chapter four, boom, he's there at the city gate. And we know the city gate is a place of business because we could see that back in a passage such as 2 Samuel 15. Um, It's a place where people judged between other people. You remember the example of Absalom, uh, the bad son of of David? He went to the city gate and basically said to everybody, hey, if uh, you made me king, Um, You'd have somebody to listen to your problems as it is. My father's there, but unfortunately, he doesn't care about you and he doesn't want to hear about all the issues you have. But if I were king, then things would be different. And he stood at the city gate, it says, and kind of heard them out and tried to win over the hearts of the people. And so we see it's the same thing here that at the city gate in the book of Ruth, that is where transactions take place. That's why Boaz goes there. So it says in verse one that after Boaz sat down, it says, behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. You wonder, how is this possible? Okay, in one sense, it's it's God's sovereignty at work because he happens to be passing by. Boaz does nothing to summon him. He just sits down and this man comes lo and behold. But you also have to understand with that that Bethlehem's a small town. And so. It was assumed on Boaz's part that if he just sat down at the beginning of the day, virtually everybody would come through that way past the city gate because it wasn't a large area. Uh, Everybody who was going someplace would have passed by that area. And so this man was bound to come along as well. And so he does. And when Boaz sees this man, it says, continuing on, he says, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And so he turned aside and sat down. So it seems like, again, Boaz is interested in getting this taken care of right away. Now, I'm going to pause right here because this is going to matter for the rest of the sermon tonight and some of the applications I'm going to draw. This is an interesting word study right here. I want you to look down at your Bible where it says, turn aside friend. Do you see that? If you have an NAS or an NIV with you or virtually almost every translation renders it this way, they choose to render it as turn aside friend friend. And the NIV says, come over here, friend. I want you to notice that because as I was studying, there was something really interesting that came out of my study that I didn't know before. And quite honestly, if you didn't do some in-depth study, you wouldn't be able to notice it from our English translations at all. And that is that the Hebrew word behind this word friend 
really doesn't mean friend at all. I mean, it's, it's, it's a logical translation the way they choose to render it. But really, it's not the normal word that we would expect for friend to be placed there. It, it's actually a very rare word, and it's a kind of a, a confusing word. The, the Hebrew there, and, and this is important, I don't just like try, I'm not trying to show off my Hebrew knowledge, because to be honest, I don't have any, okay? But uh, all the stuff I've, I've learned in seminary, it's, it's hard to keep in my head. But this is interesting when you hear it out loud. The Hebrew is Pelonai Almanai. You hear the rhyme there. Pelonai Almanai. And that's significant because as I was reading up on these two words, this compound word that's used here for friend, it says that basically those two words, they rhyme, but they don't really have any association. Like if you put the two together, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to have those two words next to each other. And, and uh, one commentary I read said it's like our English words hodgepodge or helter-skelter. Okay, if you try and figure out what a helter is, you're not going to really come up with much or a skelter, right? But we use those two words together and they rhyme just like this one does. Pelonai, almanai. And, and this is what's really, really strange about the whole thing. The, the two words together don't mean friend, but actually mean Mr. So-and-so. Mr. Literally. And, and I found I'm like, this seems weird. I read that out of one commentary. I'm like, this is, sounds like somebody's, you know, loose translation. But I read it in another one. They said Mr. So-and-so. Literally what Boaz is calling him here is, hey, Mr. So-and-so, come sit down here. It's really interesting. I want you to turn to 2 Kings 6.8 to see exactly what I'm talking about. There's only a few other times where this combo of words uh, appears in the Hebrew Bible. 2 Kings 6.8 is actually one of those times. Okay? Um, And and this has fascinated me. 2 Kings 6.8. It says, now the king of Aram was warring against Israel and he counseled with his servants saying in such and such a place shall be my camp. There it is. Such and such a place. That is the word that's being used to describe this guy. So literally Boaz is saying, hey, Mr. Such and such. Okay, not not friend, but hey, Mr. So and so. Or as I like to say, hey, Mr. What's his face. All right. So why is he called Mr. What's his face? All right, because that's how he is. He's just referred to here. And as we go through this text, he doesn't have a name. You look and look through chapter four and you don't see a name for him. We don't know what his name is. And uh, I think based on the details that we'll learn in just a second about chapter four, the reason he's not given a name is because he's not deserving of one. That the author intentionally leaves it out because he is the, the exact opposite of a man of honor. Okay. when we see all the things that this man has failed to do, we'll see that he really isn't deserving of a name. Now, I don't think that means that Boaz didn't know his name. I would like to think of this as the way the author of the book of Ruth is putting it to call him Mr. Such and such, because if he is a close relative of Boaz, I hardly think he would just refer to him. Hey, Mr. Such and such. Plus, he's going there to to do a legal transaction. That would hardly be the way to address somebody and say, hey, Mr. What's-Her-Face, I, I have a proposition for you, okay? So my personal opinion here, and this is not inspired, he could have actually said that, but my personal opinion is that it's not Boaz leaving this name out, but rather it's the author as a way of saving face for this guy who we'll see is somewhat of a nobody, okay? And I think that's the idea we're meant to get from this, this Mr. So-and-so, 
Okay, so let's let's find out what happens between Boaz and Mr. So-and-so. Boaz finds this man. He sits down with him. And then he says in verse two, uh, he also took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And so they sat down. So what Boaz is doing here is he's trying to gather some witnesses. All right. He wants to make a legal transaction. And to make that happen, you need witnesses. So he pulls some uh, some of the elders uh, there from the cities. And literally, the, uh, the word for elder means somebody with a beard. I kind of like that. So if you've got a beard, that's worthy of respect. Makes me want to grow out a really long beard. Okay, I don't know why. But anyway, that's what that means. So he's got some elders of the city. And he says, sit down for a moment. I need to complete a business transaction. I need you to spare just a few minutes. I need some witnesses. Verses 3 and 4. Then he says to his closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell this piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people, and if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there's no one but you to redeem it, and I'm after you. And he said, I'll redeem it. Okay, so again, the setting. We, we have these two men sitting down in front of the elders of the town. He wants to pull them together just to complete this transaction. Uh, Boaz speaks to this unnamed relative about the situation at hand. And he says, hey, uh, Mr. So-and-so, Mr. What's-Your-Face, um, there's, this, there's this piece of land that Naomi is selling. Uh, you, you know Naomi. She's the, uh, the widow of our brother Elimelech. And when he says our brother, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're literal brothers. It just means relative. It's a general term. Uh, and and she's selling this piece of land. Now, again, we can't fill in any of the details of Scripture that we don't have. Here it doesn't tell us why, you know, how this came to be. This is the first we learn about this transaction, in fact. Nowhere in the beginning of this book, in chapter 1, 2, or 3, does it say anything about Naomi selling a piece of land, but it seems that's the case. We don't know how she came to own it, because normally in the law, if uh, a husband died and, and he had a piece of land, that would go to his son's. And that would typically go down through the sons and then the next generation. But, of course, we know that Elimelech's sons are dead. So maybe that's how it came to be with Naomi. In any case, that's not important. Boaz is bringing this up. And apparently it is the case that she's selling this piece of land. Um, and he's bringing it up because one of the duties of the kinsman redeemer was to buy back the land that was sold when a relative died or went into poverty, which was the case with Naomi. So he's bringing this up, even though he's seeking to to really ask about Ruth. This is tied into all that, because if you look into the law, into the the Old Testament, you'll find that all these duties of the kinsman redeemer are bound together. You can't separate them. So in Leviticus 25, 25, you don't have to turn there. It just says, if a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor that he has to sell part of his property, then the nearest kinsman is to come and buy it back to buy back what his relative has sold. You see that word kinsman is used there. So it's part of this role of being a kinsman redeemer. If somebody in the family has become so poor that they have to sell a land, usually land was supposed to stay within the family. This would have been a really tragic thing. So it says buy it back. You know, don't let them sell it and and have it leave the family. Okay. now I said before that I thought this Mr. So-and-so business was because this man is not somebody who's really worthy of our respect. And I think we start to see that a little bit here. I think it's really sad that Boaz has to be the one to bring all of this up. For this close relative should have known all about this. Uh, As I said, Bethlehem was a small town. 
He didn't even need to summon this guy. He just needed to sit down in the square and know that this man was going to show up because everybody passed by there. Okay, it's not even like Lebanon. We think of Lebanon as a small town. This was an even smaller town. Everybody's going to walk by this one square before the day is up. Okay, that's how small it is. It's so small that Naomi could go away to the land of Moab for over 10 years. And when she came back in the, in the first chapter of Ruth, everybody said, is this Naomi? They hadn't forgot her. It was such a small town. Everybody knew who she was. It wasn't hard to guess who she was. Even people who weren't related to her knew who she was. So certainly this man, Mr. So-and-so, should have known what was going on. It's not a big town. He's related to her. He should have known about this, this situation. And Naomi and Ruth had just returned. Uh, it was big news all over Bethlehem. He certainly would have heard about it. And, and because both of their husbands had died, they're, they're dirt poor. They're so poor that they have to glean in the fields. They're so poor that they have to sell their only piece of property. And this man, who's supposed to be their closest relative, has done nothing to help them. You see, back in that time, as I was alluding to, your land would be everything. It was expected that that would stay in the family. You'd farm it and then it would be passed down to your children and their children after it. It's how you made a living. It's how you grew food to be able to live and survive. And if you sell your land, then you've you've got nothing. You've got no place to live. You've got nothing to farm. That was pretty much your life. And once you sell that, that's pretty much the lowest point you can stoop to. Um, Here, Naomi and Ruth are at their worst level of poverty, and Mr. No-Name is ignorant of their situation. Um, Again, it's not that big of a town. He should have known about it. After all, in chapter 1, as I said, everybody knew when she returned. And it would be kind of like if you had a relative of yours, let's say a cousin, okay, who lived far away, and you heard about them coming back to, you know, to Lebanon to live, and and uh, they don't know anybody else. Okay, there's no other family in the area. They don't have any friends. They don't have any contacts. And you hear they become homeless. They lose their job. They have no place to stay. They're roaming the streets. They're starving. And it's as if you didn't even give them a phone call. It would be as if you didn't. You knew about their situation, but you just didn't even put one small bit of effort to be able to see how they're doing to help them out. That's this kind of guy that we're seeing right here with Mr. No Name. So because this man is a deadbeat, basically, because he's worthless, Boaz is the one who has to bring this to his attention. Boaz knew about it. Other people in the town knew about it. This man didn't. And he has to say, Naomi's land is for sale. Will you redeem it? You're the first in line. Now, what's funny about this man is after all that we've learned about him, uh, Boaz just offers him this bit of land and, and he jumps on it. Okay. Uh, we don't see any indication of his caring for people, but as soon as there's some land for sale, he's all about that. In fact, in the Hebrew, normally the, the, the word I is embedded in the verb. So you don't have to say the word I like we say I in a sentence. It's part of the verb. But here there's, for emphasis, an I included, included with the verb that has I already built in. So it's like a double I. And he's like, I will, will redeem it. It's, it's emphatic. It's meant to be something that he jumps on. He's enthusiastic about it. He's enthusiastic about nothing else, uh, not about helping people. But as soon as there's some land for for sale, then all of a sudden, uh, you know, he's all about that. And I imagine at this point, okay, if we just pause in the story, 
Uh, if you were Ruth, if Ruth were present, we don't know that she's present, but if she were, you could just imagine what's going through her head. Okay, Boaz has just said, will you redeem this land? Will you be the kinsman redeemer and, and redeem this land? And he says, sure. And, and all of a sudden, her plans are falling apart. She was hoping to be able to marry Boaz. He seemed like this wonderful guy, a God-fearing guy. And all of a sudden, this Mr. No-Name says, yeah, I'll buy it. I'll do it. Can you imagine, ladies, if that were you? That one night you'd go to bed not sure if the next morning you were going to wake up and be married to a wonderful, godly, hardworking man or this guy you've never met before who doesn't even have a name. Okay, You never don't know who he is, not a person of a great character. That's the situation Ruth's in, and she's biting her nails the whole time, I'm sure, until this transaction is carried out. And it seems at this point in the story like things aren't going to take place, like their plans are for nothing. However, that's not the end it would seem that this man is not aware of his other duties as kinsman redeemer. And so our story's not over yet. Ruth chapter 4, verse 5. Then Boaz said, On the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. You see, as Boaz makes sure to point out, there's more to this transaction than just land. And, uh, and if this man really wants to serve as redeemer, he's not going to just take the land, but he also has to marry, um, to marry Ruth. He has to perform all of the associated uh, responsibilities. This is outlined for us if we go back to the book of De- Deuteronomy. Let's just turn there for a second. Go back to Deuteronomy 25. I just want you to see what I'm talking about. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10 is where we're going to be at. Um, and, and this is basically what Boaz is, is referring to. He's not making this up. Okay, he's not trying to trick this man. He's being honest. Okay, so here's another description of what it means to be a redeemer. We saw there was something in Leviticus, also here in Deuteronomy, chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. It says, When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as his wife, And perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother, so that the name will not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then the brother's wife shall go to the gate of the elders and say, My brother, my husband's brother, refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders, pull the sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall declare this. It shall be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house in Israel. His name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. All right. So you can turn back to Ruth chapter four. Now you can see there in the Mosaic law regarding this duty of a kinsman redeemer, what's all involved. As you read this, you see that it doesn't perfectly fit in uh, with what we see here, because that was dealing with the man's immediate brother. Okay, so we know that uh, both Ruth's husband and his brother both died around the same time. So this law doesn't exactly apply to Boaz or to Mr. What's-His-Face exactly, because it's speaking about a brother. It's saying if this uh, man dies, then the brother is the first one in line and he should really marry the wife to carry on the name of the family in his absence. 
Well, that's not the case here. But we can see that that law about the kinsman redeemer was carried forward and that there were some fallback plans, if you will, that if the brothers had both died, then it would go to the next of kin, which is how this arrives as a matter to Boaz or to this unnamed man. Because even though um, Ruth's husband, uh, his, his brother is dead, it still falls now to the next in line. Okay, and for that reason, I think you don't see the same element of shame. You saw in Deuteronomy that if the man refused to perform this duty, then the woman got to basically spit in his face, take his sandal off. And it was a matter of big disgrace. This was supposed to be a disgraceful thing. Well, that's because that really fell within the bounds of the duty of of the brother. And because that brother is now dead here in Ruth, there isn't that level of shame. These two individuals, Mr. No Name and Boaz, aren't expected to do this as readily as, say, a brother would have. So that's why I don't think you see this element of shame present. And, and, you know, Ruth doesn't go and spit in anybody's face, you know, through this story. That's why you don't see an exact correlation. But that's where the law is based. Um, So uh, because there is no brother to take this role, it seems like this uh, custom falls next to this unnamed person. And, And so that's why Boaz says, if you take this land, you're also going to have to marry Ruth. That means you're claiming the, uh, the, lo- uh, the identity of kinsman, redeemer, and that means you have to do everything the law says regarding that role. So now, what's interesting is, once uh, Boaz gets that all out on the table, now this man changes his mind. Once he realizes he'd have to marry Ruth, all of a sudden the deal doesn't seem so sweet to him. And, uh, and the reason he gives, if you look back in Ruth 4, he says, this would jeopardize my inheritance. Or as a footnote might read, that would ruin uh, my inheritance. What does that mean? Uh, there's two major options to that that commentators suggest. Uh, one might be that, that he realizes that if he marries Ruth, then ultimately this land that he pays for um, would one day go to her firstborn and that it ultimately wouldn't be his investment because it said in the law that the firstborn would be in the name of the deceased husband. And so maybe he's thinking, well, my investment's not going to really pay off. I'm going to have to give it up eventually. That could be what he means. Or it could be that, uh, you know, his inheritance is going to be ruined because he has something against her background. She's a Moabitess. He could be a racist individual, some have suggested. Because of uh, her race, he says, well, I can't marry her. That would spoil my inheritance. Okay, That one seems a little more far-fetched. Who knows? It doesn't tell us. But in, in any case, it seems that his reason is selfish. The reason he's saying, I don't want to take this, uh, I don't want to marry her, it's going to spoil my estate. And that changes his opinion. Now, while this shows the shallowness, once again, of this no-named individual, it's actually a a reason for us as readers to rejoice. Because now Boaz is free to marry Ruth as he's turning this role down. And you know what? As I read this, it seems to me that Boaz intended the negotiations to go this way all along. And that's pretty cool because it almost seems as you just read straight through the story that Boaz intentionally set this question up in this way, not to lead off with the question of Ruth, but to lead off with the question of the land. Kind of like, hey, would you like to buy this land? Well, sure. Why wouldn't I like to buy some land? Oh, and by the way, if you buy the land, it also means you have to take this woman to be your wife. Oh, well, that that changes the story a little bit. And it almost seems like a clever use of um, what what I read. One one commentator said Spirit-led negotiating skills. I like that. Spirit-led negotiating skills. And, uh, and, and, and really, I think that's what it is. Boaz is shrewd. He didn't lead off with the issue 
that was first and foremost in his mind. Again, we didn't know anything about the land before this chapter. That's not what he was going to this man about. But he used it as a means of drawing this fellow in and then intentionally causing him to draw back by adding this issue of marrying Ruth at the end. I think he was smart. Uh, And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I I think Boaz is being clever, but I think in a a different way than what Naomi tried to be in chapter 3. In that section, we said Naomi tried to scheme, but she did so in a way that kind of led them into a compromising situation. Here, chapter 4, Boaz is clever, but he's not in a bad way. I think he's shrewd. And you know, shrewdness, this is a good application, I think, of this passage. Shrewdness is not contrary to trust in God. Do you understand that? Shrewdness is not contrary to trust in God. Planning is not uh, contrary to trusting in God. Some might say, well, why do you need to plan? God's in control of everything. What's the point? Okay. If God's in control of everything, why, why be shrewd with your finances, with your wealth, with your, with your life, with your situations? The two are not meant to be contradictory, and I don't think they are. Uh, we find other examples of this in Scripture. They're really interesting. Ones that really make me laugh, in fact. Uh, maybe you've, you've read the passage in Acts chapter 23. When Paul was on trial, he used a bit of shrewdness as well. He was about to be tried. And uh, in, in that verse, he says, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and I am on trial for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Okay, he's about to be arrested. He's about to be taken away, possibly killed. And he looks at the situation in that chapter and he notices there are some Pharisees in the audience and there's some Sadducees. And so he throws out this clever trick, this clever line. He says, I'm on trial for the resurrection of the dead. That's clever because he knows and this text, the text even tells us that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And what happens? They get into a frenzy. They start arguing with each other. When he poses the question in that way, then all of a sudden the Sadducees are saying, well, there is no resurrection of the dead. And the Pharisees are like taking this as a personal offense. There is a resurrection of the dead. How dare we put him on trial for something like that? And before you know it, they're arguing with each other and Paul sneaks out. Okay, that isn't bad. That's smart. Paul is a genius. Paul is shrewd. And I don't think that's contrary to the will of God. Boaz is being shrewd. He's being wise. He's going into a situation hoping for something to turn out. And he is trusting in God. We know he's a God-fearing individual. We know he's somebody who trusts in God fully. But yet he also knows how to bargain. And so I think it means for us there's nothing wrong um, bargaining if you, you know, to be able to, to, to get a good deal. There's nothing wrong going to a yard sale, for example, to try and find... Uh, something at a good price. Okay, these things are not contrary to trusting in God. Some would put them at odds with each other. I don't think so. Um, some things are clever. As long as we don't violate a command, as long as we don't lead people into temptation in, in the way that Naomi was trying to be clever, uh, there are certain kinds of shrewdness, cleverness, ways of being wise that I think are, are actually a good thing and, and the Bible does not condemn. So Boaz, in God's sovereignty, through this method that he uses, um, is, is able to secure this deal. The other man backs away from the deal. Boaz will redeem Ruth instead. Verses 7 and 8. Now, this was the custom in former times concerning the redemption of the exchange of land to, conform any, to confirm any matter. The sandal was removed 
And you see, as as it goes on, it's going to talk about this similar kind of situation. Again, without as much shame as in Deuteronomy, but the sandals removed. And that is the way back then of saying that this transaction is taking place. And he says before everybody, you are witnesses in verses nine and ten that I have bought the land from the hand of Naomi. And moreover, verse ten, I've acquired Ruth, the Moabitess. Okay, and so. Boaz says, you are witnesses today that I'm going to take this role myself. And he does what Mr. No Name, Mr. Such and Such, Mr. Mr. What's-His-Face, is unwilling to do. For in marrying Ruth, Boaz agrees to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. That's what he's concerned about. This other man had no concern for that at all. He was only looking out for his own interest. Land? That sounded interesting. Looking out for somebody who was in need who is in a desperate situation to redeem one of your own family, not so much, not so interested in that. So we see a vast difference between Boaz and this man. And so what do we learn from this example? We just kind of look over chapter four. Well, I think one thing that we can learn is that we have a special privilege. Men especially have a special privilege in this, this life to be redeemers. If you think of various applications we could draw from this, uh, think about it this way. We can be redeemers to other individuals in our lives, redeemers to our wives. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, Men, depending on where God leads you, you might marry somebody who was abused. Or if you are already married, perhaps somebody uh, you're married to was abused in their past. Or in that case, uh, you can be your wife's redeemer in, in a sense. Or perhaps let's say a man marries a single mother. Somebody who's a God-fearing Christian woman, but who has had their husband walk out on his responsibilities without any warning, without any say on her part. Uh, He left her, he divorced her, holding her with the children. You know, a, a man can come in and be her redeemer in that regard. Somebody who takes her broken situation and comes in to redeem it. Or men, maybe you have married a woman whose father was absent in their life. In that case, you can be a redeemer to her. You see, Boaz was a person who was willing to take a wife who was broken, who was left all alone, who was without a husband to take care of her and provide for her. And he was willing to redeem her and rescue her. And he did so selflessly. He wasn't looking out for any of his own interests. And if you think about it this way, Ruth was poor. She didn't have anything financially to offer Boaz for him to gain in their marriage. And according to the law, even if they had children, their firstborn wouldn't even legally be Boaz's. So if you're looking at this saying Boaz has something to gain here, he really doesn't. The things are stacked against him. What we see here in Boaz is a pure example, I think, of James 127. It says pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and father is this to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That was Boaz. So the question tonight is, are you a Boaz or are you Mr. What's-His-Face? Okay, if I could put it to you that way. Are you somebody who's concerned about the needs of others and looking for ways to help out people in their distress when they have nothing to offer you? Or are you somebody who simply is in it for your own gain, who is relatively unaware of the problems that surround you? When people are hurting, you don't, you're not really aware of it. You don't really have your ears pointed in that direction and you kind of don't want to. You just rather lay low and not hear about all the distress because that might convict you or make you feel like you have to do something. Are you 
somebody like that or are you somebody who looks out for ways that they can help and uses the resources that they have, like Boaz did, with the field that he had. He offered the grain that he had to Ruth to be able to help her out. He allowed her to, to farm on his field. He used what resources he had, and he was looking out for somebody who was in need, who had really nothing to benefit on his end. Another application, I think, just as we close this out, what are you looking for? As we look in uh, the entirety of the book of Ruth, we're rejoicing at the end that they're able to come together, they get married, and we even see that David is going to ultimately be born through this line. And these two individuals that were brought together weren't looking for somebody who was overly attractive. They weren't looking for um, somebody who was the youngest. We see that in Ruth's case. It says that he was much, much older. She was looking for somebody who was godly in character, and he was as well. He's attracted to her ability to, to stick with her mother-in-law, her devotion, the way she fears God. And she is attracted to the very same qualities, how he is a God-fearing individual, how he's a hardworking individual, a caring individual. And we see when individuals are looking out for those kind of qualities in a spouse, that wonderful things happen. And, and through their devotion, we see also that God rewards them for it. We see that a God who is sovereign in all circumstances really does reward those who desire to seek after him and obey him and live lives that are pleasing to him. Okay? Uh, it says in verse 11, just as we're closing up here, uh, it says, May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. God blessed them for their efforts. They didn't know what was going to happen. They couldn't control this whole situation. God was sovereign in all of it to bring them together. Ruth just went into this land uh, not sure what was going to be her fate. She was just trusting in God, seeking refuge in him. And God su supplied this man Boaz to provide for their physical needs, to provide for grain for them to eat, and ultimately provided a husband for her. And she didn't know the end of any of it. She didn't have this whole book in front of her, but she trusted she trusted in what God would do, even though it was unseen. And the end result was because of her trust and because of the way God worked in her life, she was blessed in the end. They said, may she be like Rachel and Leah. And this is being said of somebody outside of the camp of Israel. This is being said of a Moabitess. And so uh, she had a son and his name was Obed and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Ruth became the great grandmother of King David. In the end, we learn that Ruth and Boaz... Uh, and they, they seek the Lord. And, and from this, we learn that we should seek the Lord, too, and not look out only for our own interests, but for the interests of others. To seek to help people who can't help us back, just like Boaz does, to seek and help widows in their distress, to, say, to selflessly come to the aid of others. In the end, we learn from, from this book that we should seek the right qualities in a spouse. Not to look for somebody who's good-looking alone, but somebody who is godly. And even when the future seems uncertain and life is hard, we can trust in the Lord knowing that he will reward our faith. It might take a long time, and maybe in some cases that reward might not come until the next life, until the resurrection. But we certainly see from this example that if we trust in God, that he will take care of us and he will bless us for what we do. We have a sovereign God who rescued Ruth. And we can imitate that character of God by being rescuers ourselves. Let's pray. God, thank you for this, this book of Ruth that we've had the chance to study for these past four weeks. 
Thank you for the way that it teaches us so much about your character. How above all, God, you are the one that rescues us in our distress. You are the one that is powerful and sovereign over every situation, even over the disasters of our life. And we got, God, we learn from, from this book also to trust you in the midst of disaster, in the midst of uncertain circumstances, to trust you like Ruth, to trust you like Boaz, and to live faithful lives no matter what our situation is. God, help us to trust you no matter what comes our way and to use our resources to help those in need even when they can't repay us. And God, thank you for, for the, the reminder that you do see and you do acknowledge when we seek after your face. You do bless us and you do even sometimes reward us for our efforts. And we thank you for being a God who loves us and cares for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. And you are dismissed.